Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, James was uh, gracious enough to trade Sundays with me so I could be with my wife and our oldest son in Texas next weekend. So uh, it's good to be with you here this morning. We're going to continue our study through the book of Hebrews and this whole idea of uh, believe that Jesus is greater. That's kind of the theme of the entire book. And as uh, the author of Hebrews, who is still a mystery to us. We don't know exactly who it was. But the, the author of Hebrews is kind of came out of the end of chapter 3 with this idea that we should not harden our hearts, that we should understand that, that God has a, an unbelievable plan and life for us, and he, the, he hearkens back to the, the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and how they harden their hearts, and God forbid them from entering his rest. And so he's coming into chapter 4, really kind of delving into this whole idea of entering into God's rest and what that means. When I say rest, what comes to mind to you? I would imagine in biblical terms, the most common thing that comes to mind is the Sabbath, taking a Sabbath. But how do you rest? It's hard, I think, in our American culture to think about having a day where we do nothing, right? It's hard. It's almost like we feel like we're not accomplishing something. We should be accomplishing something, right? But if you think in your mind to where, where your happy place is, maybe that's, that's how I like to think of where, where my happy place is is where I go to rest. And, where I, and it may not be that I'm just sitting there doing nothing, but it's something that I find very peaceful. Growing up, I loved going to our family cabin in southwest Colorado. Just about every summer we would go there, and it was near Durango. And I, I still, as I was uh, writing this, I remember the smells of the cabin. It was in the smell of the forest when you went outside onto the porch and the hummingbirds coming and feeding from the, the little feeders. I don't know if you ever have done this before or not. This is totally not in my notes, but... <clears throat> We had these feeders that would have, they had a spout, kind of like a rabbit feeder, but it would, they'd have to stick their beak up in there to drink. There's no, like, perch for them to sit on. So we'd set our finger up by it, and they would hover and then finally land on our finger and just sit there. I mean, just the, the peace and the tranquility that was there. It was a Swedish coat log home that had, like, some, some Swedish-type uh, woodwork in there. It was, it was pretty awesome. And um, I don't know what it is for you, where you go. These days, I love sitting in my kayak, fishing in a lake or a stream or a river. I love floating down a river in my raft and just, you know, just the road noise that the road has to be close enough to the river. But I just love being still and being quiet and enjoying the Lord. Remember in the book of Hebrews, these Hebrews that are in this time frame, this is about 67 to 69 A.D., and they're facing persecution. And they are starting to be tempted anyway to stray back away from uh, Jesus Christ and Him crucified and salvation only through Him to what they knew and what was familiar. And so they're, they're being tempted to drift back into this idea of the law. And, and wanting to be good enough and wanting to do whatever it takes to, to, uh, to have that right standing with God. And they're 
because they're realizing that their cho- choice to, to be dedicated to Jesus is causing them this persecution. So in chapter 4, if you want to open up your Bibles to chapter 4 of Hebrews, he starts there again with this word that we're familiar with, the word therefore. And um, whenever you see that word, as you probably remember, uh, he's pointing back to the point that he made in chapter 3 and that, that we should make sure that we don't fall into disobedience like the Israelites in the wilderness. The author mentioned our uh, in our topic back in chapter 3 briefly, but we're going to spend more time uh, or actually our entire time, looking at entering the, into God's rest. And like I said a minute ago, just as soon as I mention that, most people think of uh, keeping a Sabbath. It's not a legalistic thing. It's not something you have to do, you know, in the Old Testament for, for God to sanctify the nation of Israel. Um, it was a ceremonial law that was put into place. Um, it is not a moral law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, so we don't have to keep the ceremonial laws that God set up to, uh, to establish his nation. But this, this law goes a little bit beyond it. The moral law is set in the Ten Commandments, and uh, we, we're instructed to keep the Sabbath. And God didn't rest because he needed sleep. He, he stopped because his work was finished, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let's go ahead and read the first five verses here and and get into this. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering into his rest, or entering his rest, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, or as he has said, I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his words were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So in verse 1, we see here that the writer is offering the Hebrew readers hope and the promise of entering God's rest, but he urges them to reach it. What does he say we should do to reach it? He says we should fear. Now that's an odd thing to say if you don't know the Bible. Uh, Most people hear fear and they think of being afraid. Anyone who has studied the fearing the Lord knows that that it's the beginning of all wisdom. as stated in Proverbs 1.7. So why is the writer saying, let us fear? I thought we weren't supposed to have a spirit of fear based on 2 Timothy 2, right? Or 2 Timothy 1. This fear that we should have is reverence and awe of the Lord, realizing who He is, remembering what He's done, and who He's greater than. Because of all that, we should be in awe of Him and hold Him in reverence, so that none of you will come up short. This term here, uh, to fail to reach it, paints the picture of a race. There is one finish line, and only winners cross that line. Winners are those who enter God's rest. So we're talking about something that's beyond just keeping the Sabbath or taking the day of rest. What the overall picture of God's promised land for the Israelites was really that he has a life for us. And ultimately that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ to have a life of salvation and eternal life in him. 
Here in verse 2, we see that both those who enter God's rest and those who don't enter it both hear the good news. And that should get our attention. It's pointing at the fact that it isn't good enough just to hear the good news. Coming to church and hearing the truth and hope of the gospel isn't enough. You have to mix the hearing or the knowledge with faith. In the group of Israelites that originally came out of Egypt, it is estimated that there were about 600,000 that were in that older generation that weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. Out of that 600,000 people, God's chosen people, only two lived. That was Joshua and Caleb. They all witnessed the same miracles. They all saw Moses go up to the hill and come down 40 days later with God's law written on stone tablets. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw manna fall from heaven. They saw God bring forth water from a rock. They even saw Moses raise up a bronze serpent that saved their lives after being bit by poisonous snakes, which Jesus referred to in John 3.14, right before the most well-known verse in the Bible. They saw all of that, and yet when it came time to enter into the promised land, they didn't believe. It wasn't that the people were too, too tall, the giants that they saw, It wasn't that the land was unfruitful. They brought back this enormous bunch of grapes that had to be carried between two men. The land was fruitful. It's that that by that time, everyone in that generation had hardened their hearts to the point of unbelief. Hearing the word of God isn't enough for you and me to enter his rest. We must have faith. In verse 3, he says, for just to recap, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest. And he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is where, if you're not careful, things can get confusing. What are we talking about when we read enter his rest? We see that we who have believed, joined, uh, joined in hearing and faith, enter that rest. The writer repeats the passage from Psalm 95, but follows that up with an interesting statement. Two sides are described here. One, we who believed enter, and two, we, they shall not enter. So there's two groups. Both were decided from the foundation of the world. That usually blows our mind, right? God, in his omniscience, knew who would believe and who wouldn't. He knew who would choose faith and who would choose unbelief. And that work was finished from eternity past. As soon as God created the heavens and the earth, history was set into motion. Things that were decided and known from the foundation of the world. In verse 4 and 5, it points to a day when work was finished. Genesis 2.2 God rested on the seventh day because his work was done. It was finished. This idea of work being done will come up a little later, but entering God's rest is a finishing work. Yes, we honor God as we take a day of rest, but he's not concerned about a ritual. He's concerned about our hearts. Do our hearts belong to him? Do we have faith in him? Will that faith persevere to the end when we come face to face with him? Let's keep reading in verse 6 here. It says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter, 
and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in these words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Again, the writer is referring to David's words in Psalm 95 as God is calling each of us to himself. He has appointed a day, today, pleading with each of us to not harden our hearts to, and to believe. My day was April 22nd, 2002. That was my day. People get too distracted looking to a person to offer them hope. It mentions Joshua in this passage. Um, it wasn't Moses. It wasn't Joshua. And by the way, the Old Testament Greek, uh, in the Greek, when it's translated into Greek, the Septuagint, it, it means the same as Jesus in the New Testament Greek and the same meaning for Jesus. Pronounced Jesus uh, also means Jehovah is salvation. Just a little side note. In the progression of Scripture, in the storyline of God and His people, Moses led them out of slavery and wanted to take them into the Promised Land. The Promised Land was a symbol of life, of the life that God has for each and every one of us, if we will just believe. Moses, in 599,998, approximately, people died just short of entering the Promised Land. They didn't enter it. Joshua took them in. But they still didn't believe God at his word for the true experience and even to the extent that the land he truly set apart from would be theirs. And then in Psalm 95, David is still pleading with his people to not rebel against God. Like those Israelites of old, but that they would fear the Lord and place their faith in him. Here the writer of Hebrews is making the same plea. There is good news now. In verse 9, we go on, it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There still remains hope for a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Sabbath meaning the rest of the Christians as a type of heaven here on earth, as well as eternity to come. God doesn't force his way on anyone. He promises to do his part, but he still leaves it up to us to do ours. Now, that's not works. I'm not talking about works salvation here at all. It says, however, uh, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. How can we enter any kind of rest if we are still working? I think that's really what, what God is trying to instill in us. He's not talking about working on the house or working on this. I mean, we need to stop doing something to rest and focus on the Lord and what he wants to tell us and what he wants, how he wants to replenish us. But really what this is speaking to here is how can we embrace and enter God's rest if we are still working hard to earn it ourselves and by our own merit. God's work was finished and he rested. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, 
we can rest. Not because of our own works are finished, but because of his finishing work on the cross that we can rest in. That is the rest we can start experiencing today. Don't harden your hearts. Enter God's rest today. The theologian uh, David Guzik says this, he says, This rest is in a person, in Jesus Christ, not so much in doctrines and ideas. If you meet a troubled, crying child and try to comfort him and give him rest using ideas and logic, it won't do much good. But when mommy comes, the child is happy again. You ever notice that? Kids don't usually come to me that often. If I come across a troubled child, it's, I'm usually looking for mom pretty quick because I don't bring many children much comfort. But think of that. We're not finding our comfort in knowledge, in knowledge alone. We're finding our comfort in who that knowledge is in and the, the finished work that that person put forth. Hebrews 4.11 Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So it's kind of strange that it's, we're supposed to rest, but then it says to strive. So the word here in the ESV for let us strive is better defined as to be diligent, to make haste, to give, to, uh, to give due diligence. In other words, make sure you do this part. Have faith. Decide today to enter his rest. You don't want to hear the good news and be right at the doorway and fail to enter it because you've fallen into disobedience and unbelief. I found that some who put it off and keep putting it off, placing their faith in Jesus, it usually isn't because they figured they haven't figured everything out yet. It's because as they've put it off more and more, they have simply decided to harden their heart. It isn't because they haven't cleaned up their lives yet. It's because they've just grown so prone to just want what they want. That to give up what they want to follow Jesus is too much of a sacrifice. The writer here is saying, take haste. He's mentioning the earthquake earlier in prayer time. Uh, I just glanced at my phone earlier. I was curious as the current death toll. 46,000 is what I saw. How many of those people were probably thinking they had years and years to live. We, we just don't know. One of the most discomforting things that we learned when we moved here is this super volcano down in Yellowstone. It's like, oh, well, if that went off, we would, we would not see tomorrow. And the people around us would, would not see tomorrow. And so it gives us that urgency. We don't know when the Lord's going to call us home. We don't know when an accident's going to happen. We don't know when our day is, unless we've already found Jesus. We don't know when that person's day that we've been praying for or God's been burdening us to witness to. We don't know when their day's going to come. All we can do is be faithful to reach out to them and to share the gospel with them. There's, there's no better time than today. That earthquake, I think it... it 
literally shook the world, but it shook, uh, I think, the church to see. I don't know if what's happening in Asbury is any has any relevance to what happened in the earthquake, but revival is happening in our nation today. And uh, I was talking to Joanna. It's like the what's the tendency? What's the tendency in every pastor? Oh, I'd love for that to happen here. Maybe we should try and do something. It's not manufactured. We can't make that happen. It has to happen in our hearts. It happens here first. In you and me, when we're broken for this world. And we want to get our own hard hearts softened and surrendered to the Lord so that we can be used with Him. It takes diligence to trust in, rely on, and cling to Jesus and His work for us. How do we trust in, rely on, and cling to Jesus? In going to, I'm going to propose two things. One, the writer of Hebrews shows us in the next verse, and one uh, is answered based on God's top one list for best ways to improve your faith and cling to Jesus with a believing heart. This is top one list. Read God's Word. As I've been talking to people lately, that are struggling, one of the questions I've been asking them right up front is, when's the last time you read your Bible? And I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to lay out a list of things. But we're going to typically follow whatever we fill our minds with. And here in verse uh, 12 of chapter 4, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. First of all, God's word is living. It's not dead. It is active. Some translations say powerful. It is the opposite of dead and irrelevant. God's word heals. In Psalm 107, 20, it says, He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. God's word cleans us. In Psalm 119.9 it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. God's word imparts life. In Psalm 119.93 it says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. God's word gives peace. Psalm 119.165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Jesus himself is called the Word in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word of God is essential for eternal life in 1 Peter 1.23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. God's Word sanctifies. Sanctify them. John 17.17. 17, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. God's word builds faith in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I don't make the Bible come alive. The Bible is alive and gives life to the preacher and everyone who will receive it by faith. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, God's word is so sharp that it cuts in every direction it's wielded. It cuts to the point of separating soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
What does that mean? You ever wonder that? <laughs> the soul speaks to the flesh of man, the outer portion of man. The Greek word for soulless is psyche, where we get uh, the word psychiatry. The soul refers to man's life apart from his spiritual experience. This, his life is uh, relation, in relation to himself, his emotions, his thoughts. The spirit speaks to the inner part of a man or woman. The Greek word here is pneuma. The human spirit focuses on the spiritual aspect of man, his life in relation to God. So the word of God cuts even to divide two things that are so close but completely separate. Think of a joint, tendons, cartilage, even how the bone ends fit together. But on the inside, the bone is the blood-producing, life-giving portion, the marrow. The word of God cuts down to the core of our hearts and exposes what's really there. I'd say the number one reason that people don't read their Bible is because they are fearful that if they do, they'll feel bad. That bad feeling is called conviction. We've all heard the advertising make bold claims for a product that does not live up to hype, right? Peter makes a bold claim in that 1 Peter 2 passage that God's word will endure forever and is the greatest source of nutritional health for the human soul, custom designed by God for our well-being. In an effort to see the impact of Bible reading, there's a, uh, the power of four is what this, is, this research comes from. They wanted to see the impact of Bible reading. And the ministry of Back to the Bible had 400,000 people surveyed. Their findings were quite astonishing. For those people who read the Bible three times or less a week, the life changes were minimal. Everything changes, however, when someone reads God word, God's Word four times or more a week. As soon as God's Word becomes a part of the majority of your week, here's what happens. Here's what they noticed in their research. They notice a 407% uh, increase in memorizing Scripture. 228 more likely to share their faith with others and a 59% less likely to view pornography and 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. The second uh, suggestion here is to help, us fully, to help us fully trust in Jesus and enter his rest is prayer. I know, it's a big shocker, right? Anytime I'm talking to somebody that's struggling to understand how you have a relationship with God, this, this being that you can't see, I always ask them, well, how did I form a relationship with my wife? I remember when we were dating. We, we spent hours, thank goodness it wasn't long distance, hours and hours on the phone. I talked to her, found out what she was like and what she was interested in and what she thought about this and that. That's why we go to God's word to find out more about him, but we pray to him to talk to him. We pray to him to build that relationship. Philippians 6, I'm sorry, there's no Philippians 6, by the way. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, is, gives us an example of how we should go to pray to the Lord. Obviously, we have the Lord's prayer that he gives us. But as we go through our lives, as we're struggling in our faith, as we struggle to put one foot in front of the other and following the Lord, here's his example. It says, do not be anxious about anything. You hear that and you go, well, that's easy for you to say. This is Paul, remember. This is the guy that was whipped and flogged and stoned and left for dead so many times. 
says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, which is simply being very specific with your prayer requests. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In other words, go to him. Go to him in prayer. In other words, we're going to the one that we know that he can take care of. Even if we don't see him taking care of it right in the instance in front of us or in the next few days, it could be delayed. It could just not be his time or it could not be his will. But we're taking our cares to him going, I can't handle this anymore. So I'm, I'm praying to you here, take this. And I want to be very specific, like your granddaughter's health. Maybe somebody to clean her apartment. I'm joking about that part. Anyway, <clears throat> very specific prayer, but with thanksgiving. Lord, I'm bringing this to you, and I'm thankful because I know you hear my prayer. I, I thank you that when I, when I pray to you in your will, I know that I can obtain whatever I'm asking for because I know it's according to your will. There's things to be thankful for. It goes on to talk about, look back to the times that God has been faithful to you in the past and focus on those things. And here's what will happen, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and, mind, and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we go to him in prayer, and we're very specific, and we're thankful, and we offload all those burdens onto him, we're going to get a peace that baffles everybody around us and might even baffle us and surprise us in the process. Hebrews 4.13 it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight. That's probably what intimidates people from reading the Bible as well. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This last verse expels any belief that we can hide from the Lord and that he won't see what we're really thinking and doing. Nothing is hidden from his sight. We are naked and exposed. Open and overcome to him who we must give account to. The writer of Hebrews here in these last few verses is pointing to the reminder that as we submit ourselves to the word of God, we do it for far, far more than intellectual knowledge or to learn biblical facts. We do it for the ministry of the word because God meets us in his word. And the Holy Spirit works powerfully through our meditation on the word of God. As we think about this and we take this all into consideration, and we think back to that, that uh, suggestion of fear, uh, it, it made me think of uh, Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. And as I, as I read this, I just, I don't know, I read passages like this and it makes me fall in love with God even more. It says in verse 37, it says, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I shall be their God. I will give them one heart and one way and they will that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. 
And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Excuse me. I don't know about you, but sometimes this life is going on and it gets to be a struggle. We can start to ask ourselves, is this all worth it? Is, is placing our faith in a God that we can't see and sometimes it's hard to see him working in the world, is it worth it? Is he really still good? And then we read a verse like that, a passage like that. That the first part of his everlasting covenant is that he won't turn from us. It's not a dictatorship where he says, this is how it's going to be, kneel and cower and all this other mess. He says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. I'm never going to turn from And he'll place the fear, the awe, and reverence in us. For the believer, that's the Holy Spirit living in us. So that we will never turn from him. Charles Spurgeon says this, See how God puts his whole heart to the work when he is blessing his people. When he forgives sin, it is with his whole heart and soul. May we and our whole heart and soul repent of our sin and then with all of our heart and soul serve the Lord. The more I read my Bible, the more I have reverence and awe, fear, the fear of the Lord. The more I spend time in prayer, true gut-level prayer, I'm not talking about praying for a meal. I'm talking about crying out to God in thanksgiving the more peace I find because it reminds me who is really in charge of answering my prayers. The more I invite the Holy Spirit to search my heart and comfort me and counsel me and tell me of things to come, the more I'm in awe of our Lord. Don't run from the Word of God. Dive into it. Devour it. Study it. Study it with other believers and grow together. Enter His rest. Believe and place your faith in Jesus Christ and even dive into His Word and let it transform your life as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for loving us. Lord, I thank you for your Word that you preserved it. Using 40 authors over a span of 15, 1600 years to write down your very Word breathed out by you so that we would know you so that we could come to believe in you place our faith in you and walk faithfully with you thank you that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence and we can come to you in our time of need and cry out to you for help 
And we know that we will receive comfort from the God of comfort. So whatever we're going through in our lives, whether it's loved ones that don't know you, whether we don't know you ourselves, whether it's granddaughters that are ill, whatever the case may be, you desire for us to come to you as our Heavenly Father. You desire for us to to cry out to you because you love us and you want to minister to us. Lord, help us to not lose heart. Help us to have a healthy fear of you in us that we will serve you faithfully. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that we will leave and be a light in the world that we walk into. No matter whether it's going back home, it's just our family, or we go out into the world and people are watching us. Help us to bring glory to you today, God, in Jesus' name.